Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Ian Head, and I'm here with my co-host, Dalia Hussein. Hi, listeners. If you haven't visited our new webpage for The Activist Files, check it out at ccrjustice.org slash activists files, or find it from the top menu bar on CCR's homepage. You can search, listen, and share more easily now. We have a jam-packed episode, so let's get right into it. On this episode, senior legal worker Leah Todd talks with educator, organizer, and director of Project Nia, Miriam Kaba, and journalist, author, and organizer Victoria Law about their work on issues of violence, incarceration, gender, criminalization, and transformative justice. This episode highlights the importance of thinking in new ways about healing and providing accountability for harm. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. Today I'm joined by two uh, legendary people and doing very transformative work around issues of prison, of intimate partner violence, policing, and, and many other forms of violence. I'm really excited to introduce both of you and have you join us on this episode. So thank you so much uh, to Victoria Law and Mariam Kaba for joining us. I invite you both to introduce yourselves to our audience. Hi, I'm Mariam Kaba. I am an educator and an organizer. I am the director of an organization called Project Nia. Project Nia is a grassroots organization with a long-term vision of ending youth incarceration in particular. I've been part of and have co-founded several organizations over the years. I am originally from New York City. I lived in Chicago for over 20 years, and I returned back to New York City a couple of years ago. A lot of my work focuses on addressing prisons and policing and forms of surveillance. I am happy to be here joining you for this conversation alongside Vicky, who I admire quite a bit as well for for organizing and work over the years as well. So thank you for having me. My name is Vicki Law. I am a freelance journalist and author with a focus on the intersections of incarceration, gender, and resistance, or my usual shorthand is women in prison. Um, I am the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, which looks at the resistance and organizing happening in women's prisons across the United States. I am the co-author of an upcoming book with Maya Shenmar, who's the editor-in-chief of Truth Out. And our book is called Your Home is Your Prison. And it looks at ways in which popularly proposed alternatives to incarceration often have the effect of increasing the carceral state rather than actually shrinking prison's reach into our homes, our communities, and our lives. And I am a parent of a wonderful daughter who sasses me on Twitter and is in her first year of college down south. And uh, I am the co-editor of an anthology called Don't Leave Your Friends Behind, ways in which people can support parents in social justice communities and movements based on some of my own experiences and the experiences I've heard other parents and caregivers talk about when they are trying to organize and caregive at the same time. Great. Well, thanks to both of you. Um, So first off, since you gave us a little bit of background, um, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about 
how you got involved in the work you're involved in, as I understand it, involved personal experiences that you had with uh, these issues. Well, when I was in high school, so I grew up in Queens, New York, and I grew up in the 1990s when, unless you were super smart and you were able to get into one of the like top public high schools, like Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, the ones where you take special tests and you have to be like the top, you know, you have to ace the test to get into, you went to your zoned high school, which meant that you were in a certain neighborhood and you were supposed to go to a certain high school. My zoned high school was for some reason not the high school that was four blocks away from my house, but it was in Jamaica, Queens. So it was several subway stops away. It was an overcrowded high school. It was mostly black, brown immigrant kids whose families did not know, just like my mother did not know, that in order to get into the high school that was a few blocks away from my house, you borrowed somebody else's address so that you were technically zoned for that school. So these were kids whose families didn't have social capital or social resources, didn't have connections, didn't have this kind of information. It was the kind of school that we would now call a school-to-prison pipeline school, but at the time we didn't have any such terminology. So it was just a school in which there were metal detectors and airport x-ray machine bag things where you like put your bag through the scanner every morning and they x-rayed your bags. There were security guards who sometimes reacted to students by doing things like throwing them down the stairs or brutalizing them. It was a school that was overcrowded. So if you were not the best in your class, um, or if you didn't somehow catch the teacher's attention, they kind of couldn't care or didn't care whether or not you were there. So a lot of times if you just showed up every day and like put your head down and slept or doodled in your notebook, you would just pass and you would just get passed along to the next grade. And this was also in the 1990s, and probably even before that, a perfect recruiting ground for gangs. So a lot of my friends got recruited to join gangs, dropped out of high school, ended up getting arrested. Their families, who had been unable to navigate the public school system, also were unable to come up with the $500 to $1,000 required for bail. So they ended up going to Rikers Island, which your listeners probably know is the notorious Island Jail Complex right outside Queens. And that was the start of my direct experience with criminalization and incarceration was through my friends getting arrested, going to jail, and me going to visit them at Rikers Island. And for listeners who have ever been to visit a jail, you know that when you go to visit somebody at a jail, particularly if you go to visit them at Rikers Island, I don't know what it's like if you listen, if you go to a smaller jail system, you spend a lot of time waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And you are not allowed to bring things with you into the waiting room. So it's not like a doctor's office or a dentist's office where you can bring your book or your, well, we didn't have cell phones then. Um, you could bring your book or you could bring a magazine or something else. You literally have to lock everything in a locker and then you just sat in this waiting room and you waited for your friend or family member's last name to be called. Um, and you would sometimes wait three, four, five hours for your one-hour visit. And so what do you do in that time? Or what did I do during that time? And what did everybody in the waiting room do during that time? Is you make friends with the people around you. You strike up conversations. And then this topic turns to, like, what are they arrested for? And they start talking about that. And what I was hearing again and again and again is that people were being arrested for drugs. They were being arrested for, you know, like, small petty things that they wouldn't have done if they had had access to more resources. You know, like, so drug dealing, drug using, drug possessing, burglary, robbery, things that 
people would not have done if there had been some other thing for them to do, for them to be able to survive and thrive in society. Nobody had murdered a whole bunch of people and chopped them up and put them in their freezer. Nobody had decapitated a whole bunch of people. These were all regular people and their loved ones, mostly women of color, or regular people trying to visit their loved ones and maintain contact. And at the same time, I started reading about prisons because suddenly there was this new issue, this new thing in my life that had never been in my life before. And everything I read about the systemic racism and the way in which prisons, police and prisons target certain communities, people from certain income and ethnic demographics, matched up to everything I saw three times a week. When I was waiting for the Rikers bus, when I was riding the Rikers bus, when I was waiting in all those waiting rooms, when I was sitting in that visiting room, when I was like waiting to come back, this all matched up like week after week after week. So I began to see that this wasn't just an anomaly. This wasn't the way that the New York Post would say people's individually respons- individual responsibilities and individual moral failings that led to, you know, them, them being arrested and locked up um, and subject to these kinds of conditions. This was s- systemic. Of course, I didn't come to that realization overnight. It took, you know, months and years. But that was the start of me becoming involved with issues and beginning to educate myself about them. Great. And I know, Mariam, you also um, have, have, a, have a story that I would love to hear. And maybe um, as you talk about it, maybe we can introduce the concept that I know both of you have, have written, spoken about a lot, of carceral feminism. And, and maybe we can also talk a little bit about that, how that's kind of it influenced your story and your work? You know, it's hard to really talk about one thing that made the difference. There really wasn't for me. I grew up here in New York City on the Lower East Side. I had lots of friends who kind of came into conflict with the law through just regular, you know, teenage stuff and not so regular teenage stuff. I really didn't have an analysis for that as a teenager. I I think I had a, a racial analysis in my kind of mid-teen years, but I still didn't really connect that racial analysis to prison so much as I did to policing. I was, when I was around 12 or so, Michael Stewart was killed by the New York City police. Um, and he was a young person who was tagging a wall and the cops, beat him and he ends up dying. Um, I was a teenager when Eleanor Bumpers was killed and I have a recollection of that. Um, I, so I had a real kind of understanding of the police as an occupying force. I never, I didn't really have an officer-friendly experience with the cops, but I didn't connect that then to criminalization and a railway to jail and prison. And I didn't ask myself why the people I went to school with who were, I went to a private school on the Upper West, you know, Upper East Side of New York, and why my friends there who were rich and connected were doing many of the same exact actions as those who were, uh, it was living beside and with um, at home, uh, and they were doing the same things, and they were ending up locked up. I didn't have an analysis for that, but it was happening. It wasn't until I was older and I came across various injustices, cases where young people were being threatened with being charged as adults. Then I started noticing discrepancies around that particular issue and 
uh, the unfairness in the system, basically. Then I had family members start getting caught up in the system, ending up either arrested or locked up. That also was an eye-opener for me and a kind of direct linkage. Then I had pen pals who were prisoners. And I don't know, I think my first, the first person I ever wrote to who was in prison that I can remember was Mumia Abu-Jamal. And I was a teenager at that point. So I think, you know, there were lots of different ways and places that raised my awareness, opened my eyes, got me asking questions about why things were the way they were. I was always a young person and a kid that was concerned with fairness. Um, so I paid a lot of attention to things I thought were unfair, um, and that kind of held me in good stead. Great. And and I know that a lot of your work, and I think a bit of Vicky's work as well, touches on, on the concept of carceral feminism. So maybe you can define that for our listeners and how it kind of folds into the work that you do. So carceral feminism, which is a term that I I struggle with because you bring it up and then you have people who are carceral feminists who just, their knee-jerk reaction is, I'm not a carceral feminist. And it's like, but you are. Um, is a way in which people believe that locking people up, you know, will actually like solve or decrease or is it a way to address and prevent gender-based violence, whether it's sexual violence, family violence, domestic violence, but the solution is not, you know, how do we address these forms of violence at their root causes or what causes people to do this type of harm and how do we stop that, but instead looks at prisons and arrests and prosecutions and all the arms of the carceral state as the solution instead. So we see this, you know, in the 1980s with the rise of mandatory arrest laws in which when police are called for domestic violence dispute, they have to arrest somebody regardless of what actually happened. We see this with the rise of in the very few cases in which rapes are reported and prosecutors bother to prosecute rape survivors being locked up because they refuse to testify. We see this in the outcry against the six-month sentence that Brock Turner was handed, uh, was sentenced to by a judge, um, in that people wanted a longer prison sentence for him, even though that was not going to address the violence and the, the sexual violence he inflicted on the girl that he assaulted. So we see carceral feminism as a way in which people believe that this is what's going to keep women safe, not how do we change the conditions and how do we change the societal attitudes that enable these conditions in order to keep everybody free from this kind of violence. I would just add that kind of when you're thinking about the idea of carceral feminism, the people who subscribe to it, as Vicky talked about, subscribe to the thinking that the way to end violence is through more violence, um, and mainly the, mm-hmm. the violence of the state, that they don't see themselves as quote-unquote, like, nobody would call themselves a carceral feminist story. People would not describe themselves as that. And so I think it's really important uh, to to kind of put that out on the table and to say that it's an analysis of a set of beliefs and values that people have that we're talking about when we're talking about carceral feminism. You know, it's not an identity. (laughs) It's a, it's a set of principles, values, ideologies that people subscribe to about how you're going to actually end violence of various sorts, 
mostly interpersonal forms of violence. For mm-hmm. me, I've always said like feminism is actually not for me an identity. It's actually a set of political beliefs that I have about power and the way that it operates in the world and about inequalities and the ways in which those also operate in the world through gendered, classist, and racist ways, right? And also ways focused Mm -hmm. on uh, sexual orientation. So, you know, it's a political project uh, linked with a set of ideologies and ways of thinking and values and all of that stuff. One other thing is that adherence to carceral feminism, even if, like, you know, nobody says, hey, I'm a carceral feminist, also ignore the ways in which women of color are often targeted by these same systems or these same systems of oppression actually make it so that women of color are the victims and the targets of this kind of violence. So I'm thinking specifically of an Oklahoma City police officer named Daniel Holtzclaw who targeted at least a dozen black women in low-income neighborhoods whom he believed had, whom he either believed or knew had past arrest records. And he would go through their neighborhoods, pull them over, and then sexually assault them. And he specifically chose those women because he realized that the system was stacked against them, that they were least likely to report his violence because they were black, because they were low income, because he was a police officer. So they were the a lot less credible victims. And in a lot of cases, they themselves had arrest records or or run-ins with the police before, which then made them less likely to be believed and more likely to be further targets of police violence if they dare to speak out against another police officer. So we can see ways in which this supposed reliance on the criminal legal system actually also works against people and works in favor of people who might perpetrate violence by targeting many of the same people that the criminal legal system locks up and targets again and again. Actually, in talking about this, I have two directions I want to go in that are sort of mm-hmm. uh, two opposite directions. One is I'd, I'd love to hear, because, uh, Mariam, I know you've been doing a lot of work looking at, instead of these cycles of violence leading to more violence but not dealing with harm, just looking at, at other ways that people have tried to engage uh, people have caused harm but not using the criminal legal system. But at the same time, I also would love to hear uh, from both of you and maybe from Vicky, uh, you know, how this rush and reliance on policing and prison is actually affecting prison policy and how that falls out for women, for parents, for trans people, for HIV-affected people. So maybe if you want to start, Miriam, and, and talk a little bit about that work you've been doing, and then maybe we can look at the other side of it. I don't know. Honestly, this could go on for a really long time. So, I mean, it can be its own podcast, honestly. So what I'll say is because I have had a commitment to an abolitionist horizon for many years, I have chosen to try to figure out ways to transform harm when it occurs in my communities, at least to be present in that transformation in ways that could be helpful. Um, And through that, I have relied on community accountability strategies to address harm when it does arise in my communities. And I don't see that as a 
it's not an alternative to incarceration. It is not mm-hmm. uh, for me. You know, it is not, that's not the way that I'm thinking about this. I believe that in order to be able to uproot violence in our communities, everybody has to be involved. So I think it's got to be all of us getting together and uh, making a collective decision that we're not going to tolerate harms that are caused to other people in our circles and being Mm -hmm. active participants and making sure that that is the case, trying to build a culture where we actually want people to take accountability for harm and we then also, Mm -hmm. therefore, um, are engaged with those people um, to to take accountability. So um, we recognize that we're not going to be able to make people accountable, that they have to choose to be accountable. That means that's a huge amount of work that we need to do as a culture to make it so that people would want to do that. Currently, there's I don't I always ask people, I'm like, what in our culture encourages people to say, yes, I did this, when they do something harmful? Almost nothing. Everything, the system encourages you to lie and deny, minimize, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the uh, our communities really kind of want you to do the same thing. Um, so I've been engaged in facilitating community accountability processes in my communities for over 15 years now. Um, I see it as a way of prefiguring the world in which I want to live. So that's why I do it. It isn't a job. I don't get paid. It's not, you know, so... It's part of why I'm I'm more hesitant now, I think, than when I was starting to do this work, to talk about the work publicly in a weird way, because the culture has moved in this, at least language-wise, to act as though it really wants transformative justice and these other forms. Like, what I really think people are invested in punishment, and I actually think that people really feel a need for that while saying that they actually want something else. (laughs) So I've been struggling a little bit lately with what this all means in a public way, and that's why I'm engaged in having conversations with people about what they're doing, how they're doing it, uh, co-sponsoring convenings, which I've been doing for many years now, uh, where we can talk together and think together. I think we're better when we have a collective uh, angle on things. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is, why is everything where harm occurs, the only solution being offered is criminalization? We're saying that's a problem. Well, then the opposite also has to be true. That if you want to offer, quote unquote, a solution, that makes no sense. It's got to be many types of solutions, very much focused on the communities themselves and what they decide is culturally appropriate and desirable for them. Uh, and coming to consensus around that in some way. So it's going to look different for different things, for different harms, for different people. Mm-hmm. That's not satisfactory to people because they just want a one-size-fits-all answer, and there isn't one. I actually really appreciate you talking about uh, some of the struggles because I think, I think you're right that people really do want to hear that there's just some other solution we haven't quite instituted. And, and in fact, it's it's very hard work. I know that you've also recently at least put together the Transform Harm website, which is a, mm-hmm. a really incredible resource for 
people who are interested in, in learning more about these visions and seeing how they've been practiced uh, by different people yes. who, who have documented. And I, I know that's such a gift that I'm certainly very grateful for. So I hope that that's at least been kind of a helpful way as you struggle with this to educate more about the work. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing up transformharm.org. Uh, really, transformharm.org is my response to the flood of emails that I get on a weekly basis from people who want something about transformative justice or evolution and mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I was, I've was i just been exhausted by it, honestly. And I was just like, let me just make mm-hmm. one thing and put a bunch of things in it. And when anybody asks me something, just send them the link. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. what that is. <laughs> I mean, but that's real labor. Vicki, I know you've written and spoken on this, too, so I also want to invite you to share any thoughts on how you've seen this play out and, and, you know, how that maybe counters to how you've seen prison play out for people who, you know, might have experienced harm themselves, for women, for trans people. What we've seen with the explosion of mass incarceration over the decades is that it's not even though literature or media about prison still primarily focuses on men, you know, there are different ways in which people are criminalized. There are very many, there are similar ways in which people are criminalized. And then there are the gendered ways in which women, trans folks, gender nonconforming folks, immigrants, survivors of violence are also criminalized and swept up into the net. Um, and one of the things I wanted to add to what Miriam was saying about transformative justice not being this like one size fits all is that, you know, prisons have done, and I'm going to quote things Miriam has said earlier, is that prison also strips away our imagination. So we think like, oh, we just have, we have to have this one thing, this one monolithic answer to all sorts of harms, you know, and it's not like a think outside the box, like how do we actually address um, harm in instance A with person X and person Y and person Z, you know, and that might look very different than when we, when we look at harm that was done by person A, person J, and person M in some other city in some other scenario. Um, Like you can't have a one-size-fits-all type of thing because it just, you know, like that's not the way harm and that's not the way that trying to address harm looks like. But, the, you know, like this reliance on prison that has developed, you know, over decades has stripped us of the idea that communities can come together to do something, that people should be doing something other than picking up their phone and calling 911. Like if you hear your next door neighbor being assaulted by their loved one, you know, like it strips us of the idea that perhaps there's something we can do other than pick up the phone and call 911. So I think that that's really important to note. And then I think we also need to remember too that like we have as a culture have been raised on revenge fantasies, you know, like all the Westerns and all the this, that and the other, like, it's all about revenge. It's never like addressing, it's never addressing harm. It's like this person was assaulted or their house was burned down or their family was killed. And then they come back and they exact their revenge either through the criminal legal system or because they're like shooting it out in the wild, wild west. We've been conditioned from a really, really early age to embrace this idea of revenge and vengeance, you know, against the person that harmed you. And that's really difficult to shake off if you've been harmed. You know, I can probably think of like half a dozen instances when I've been harmed when really my knee-jerk reaction is I want to hurt you back. You know, like my knee-jerk reaction is not like, how do we address the harm and make sure this doesn't happen again and make sure you didn't do this, you don't do this to somebody else. It's, no, I want to take your head off. Like first, like that, that's my go-to instinct. And that is from like me watching things from a very, very, very young age 
that reinforces this notion of, you know, if you are hurt, you should go seek revenge. You should hurt this person back. Not how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? How do we make sure this person doesn't hurt anybody else? And uh, make reparations, the person or the people that they've harmed. But going back to your question about how this expands, I mean, we see this with um, survivors of domestic and sexual violence. Maryam, one of the many networks, coalitions, organizations that Maryam has founded has been Survived and Punished, which supports survivors of violence who have been criminalized and incarcerated. And this includes a number of people who have endured months, if not years, of domestic violence at the hands of somebody who said that they love them. And in many instances, tried to call 911, tried to get, you know, the person either arrested or get a restraining order or try to get them into a batterer's intervention program or try to go through the legal system to get the harm to stop. Maybe they don't necessarily want this person locked up for life, but they want this person to stop doing the harm. And again, this is where the criminal legal system says we are the only answer and you shouldn't do anything else except come to us for the answer, except in all of these instances, the criminal legal system either did nothing or did next to nothing, which might as well have been nothing, because what it showed people who their abusers was that they could just continue to abuse with impunity and maybe go to jail for two nights, come out, be mad, continue the violence. And when they finally fought back, um, tried to escape, defended themselves, then they ended up being the ones who were criminalized and prosecuted and gone after with the kinds of vengeance that the criminal legal system goes after people for, but only in certain instances. Like we don't see the criminal legal system going after Harvey Weinstein for the same vengeance they did for the five young kids that became known as the Central Park Five. You know, like we don't see them going after the white millionaire movie mogul with tons of power and tons of connections in the same way that they went after five young black kids who had been falsely accused of sexual assault. So we see ways in which people get targeted based on race, based on class, or people don't get targeted because of who they are, because they have connections, because, you know, like there's this unwillingness to believe that certain types of people can do certain types of harm or, oh, they didn't mean it. They like, you know, like, let's give them a second chance. People made decisions not to go after Harvey Weinstein. People made decisions to go after these five young kids. And like, you know, like there are so many instances in which this happens that are just everyday routine instances that never make the news, that we never hear about. I think it's, um, I would just add one thing too that I think is important Mm -hmm. for people to think about um, when we're talking about the impacts of incarceration. I think, you know, I like to use the term mass criminalization over mass incarceration, just Mm -hmm. because I think um, it, the scope of the problem is much, much greater. Like the, mm-hmm. the thing we, we focus on because we rightfully should is incar- incapacitation and incarceration because that's such a drastic uh, response to harm to take somebody's liberty from them and basically consign them to social death. That, you know, that's such a major thing. So we pay a lot of attention to that. But what's happened over the last 50 years in the U.S is an epidemic of mass criminalization. And I think Mm -hmm. when we talk about mass criminalization over mass incarceration, we can see gender in a very different way because then we're looking at people, quote, just being arrested. Well, an arrest has an impact Mm -hmm. on your life, giving you a record, putting you in the system, making you more vulnerable to other forms of 
contact with the system, any contact with the system whatsoever puts you in a bad place. And so, you know, I always think if we, if we widen the lens, that means that we actually can capture more people in terms of seeing how these things impact folks. It also makes forces us to look at, you know, charging decisions being made by prosecutors mm-hmm. who don't end up. It forces us to look at parole and probation and other forms of surveillance that don't necessarily land somebody behind bars. Um, and so I really feel like when we talk about mass criminalization, then we're able to look at the kind of the specific frailties that are created and exacerbated by criminalization, specifically to women, trans and cis, to people who are gender non-conforming, et cetera. And we also then, when you think about criminalization, we have to look at post-release. We have to look at what happens to people when they get out. Because criminalization really is like, to me, it looks at what happens before you end up potentially in the system. And it then looks at what happens to you after you're turned through the system. So the afterlife of incarceration mm-hmm. is something that we really, really, really do a poor job in this country of addressing, right? Like the ways in which you continue to be punished, the perpetual punishment that the system imposes on you, even when you so-called have done your time, right? Your inability mm-hmm. to find a job, your not ability to not find housing that's stable, your, uh, the, the ways in which the money that your earning potential for the years that you were most at the point when you could earn money were curtailed because you end up actually, a lot of people mostly are ending up, when you end up in jail, in prison, you're young. Relatively. Now, I know we have mm-hmm. people in long-term sentences who end up being elderly in prison. We have a whole crew of folks, but that's the minority compared to the majority of folks who are of, quote-unquote, productive age when they end up locked mm-hmm. up and taken out of the system. So you don't have the years of having accumulated some level of financial cushion that would allow you to, quote, retire. These kinds of things, I don't think we have yet grappled with what this is going to do, it's already lots of pain, lots of suffering, lots of injustice. Because we've had so many people criminalized over the last 50 years, I don't think we've begun to see the effect of it. It's going to be a ripple upon ripple upon ripple that it not just impacts the criminalized, but impacts their communities, their families, the people who are in close proximity to them, the people who are three steps removed from them. Everybody's implicated. And that, to me, it is not a message that people really are willing to hear yet, even after all these years of people supposedly interested in the new Jim Crow and this and that. People don't get it. They still really, it's still, I saw some horrendously huge number of people, close by 70 million people with a criminal record in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We have a population of, what, 320 million? That's a lot of people. Something like one out of two black women has a family member or loved one incarcerated or in the criminal punishment system ensnared in some way. When you think of numbers like that, I don't think we can really grasp what that means. So I know we don't have that much more time, but I just wanted to expand and add to what Vicky's saying, which is like, this is a massive problem. 
that is just people are still really not getting. And I think it's a problem that also prison systems, politicians, people who have a vested interest in mass surveillance and mass control, whether it's, you know, like through brick and mortar prisons and jails or these new kinder, softer way, quote unquote, alternative to confinement have seized upon because we're not thinking of the kinds of mass criminalization that Maryam has just been talking about. So now we have these discussions about things like electronic monitoring in which you have a giant device strapped to your ankle that tracks your movement via GPS, you know, at any given time, you have to get permission to do any little thing like going to the grocery store, taking your kids to school, you know, going to parent teacher conference or not, um, going to church or not, you know, like going to your job at such and such time, but, you know, like having to get permission for all of these things. And these are being touted as alternatives to incarceration. And if you're not thinking about mass criminalization and you're not thinking of mass incarceration as a system of control and surveillance, but you're just thinking of it as the brick and mortar prisons that are horrendous and awful and deplorable and people should not be in, then you miss the next metamorphosis Mm -hmm. of this system into these like kinder, gentler things where, yes, it is great to actually be able to be home and like go and open your refrigerator and get a soda whenever you want and not have to sit up in your bed five times a day and recite your state ID number. Um, every time there's a, you know, every time the guards are doing a count or not have your stuff be violently thrown all over the place anytime a guard is having a bad day. Yes, these are all preferable to being in prison is being in your house if you have a house, but that's not addressing the wider system behind all of this. It's just letting it transform from the brick and mortar jails and prisons into things that we're not thinking about and we're not aware of. And because they sound better, might bamboozle people into saying like, well, yes, of course, this is a great alternative to incarceration. Let's do this without seeing the ways in which this just then expands prisons Mm -hmm. and surveillance and control into our communities and our lives and normalizes these kinds of systems into our daily lives. I also think the important thing here that, you know, Vicky brings up about incarceration and these other forms of being pitched as alternatives to prison, key, alternatives to prison, okay, mm-hmm. not alternatives mm-hmm. to criminalization, right? So this, so, mm-hmm. so that, that these things are being uh, pitched out there in this very specific, specific kind of way. I just want to point to like two really big things that are to me that keep me up. At night, um, as we're moving in this direction more and more, and as people are like, yeah, this is definitely better than being locked up in a cage. And I'm saying people really have got to think, okay? We have got to be critical thinkers. And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about all of the people who, A, are already disenfranchised and already divested from, who will not have a home to be caged in. Therefore, mm-hmm. cementing the inequality of what gets offered as alternatives to people in that way too, which is I can't, af- I don't have a home to be caged in. I can't afford to pay because remember, these electronic monitoring things are not free. They're at the cost of the person being incarcerated, right? Mm-hmm. Overwhelmingly. 
So I don't have the cash to pay $300 a month or every two weeks to a case manager, quote-unquote, for EM monitoring. I don't have that. So mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to access it. So that's one angle of it, See, just the, the kind of the inequality of inequalities, right? So that's going to be one mm-hmm. aspect of it. The second thing is we talk about prisons being places where people are locked up and thrown away and we don't get to see them, quote unquote. Like, you know, they put prisons in rural communities where mm-hmm. people have to go six hours in order to visit their families. Think about just how it's the visible invisibility of EM and other kinds of alternatives is that you're in your home. That means that people will expect things of you they don't expect of you when you're locked in a prison. For example, Mm -hmm. judges will start saying to folks, you're at home, you got to work. So now Mm -hmm. maybe your only access to work is not, you can't go out, you're going to be doing telephone marketing or other forms to like feed capitalist production, but from your home. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be paying, right, paying the state to have the option of quote-unquote EM, but then imposing work requirements on people that'll be very limiting because people really won't be able to do them because they're going to be under so much surveillance and control. And then we're going to say to people, you also have to take care of all your needs now mm-hmm. in a way that, yeah, so the food is horrible at prison, the like, but you are being provided Healthcare. Sometimes they're doing stuff with copays, but sometimes they're not. You're doing all sorts of stuff that now is just going to be privatized. It's in your home. You're responsible. Think about the divestment of responsibility. It's mm-hmm. engaging people, and we are not having to like actually provide even the bare, horrible minimum that we currently provide for people in the public system. Right? Like, I just think people are not thinking this stuff through. So the visible invisibility thing that I mean is you may be able to see your friend because you come home and that you come and visit them according to probation's uh, willingness to allow you to do so. Right? You might come and visit this mm-hmm. person at their home and see them. But the larger society, well, these people will become even more, they'll be so invisibilized because we won't even see them as prisoners. Right now, prisoners are invisibilized, but we know there's a class of people that are prisoners, and we have, like, a vision of that. We don't know what this, quote, class of folks who are going to be on e-monitoring are. I mean, they're human beings, clearly, right? We believe that. We believe, like, but, like, are they prisoners? Is that what, is that what prison is going to be for us in the 22nd century? Like, what is, what, what is this class of people that are going to be locked in their homes? So I, I really worry, like, what does that mean for advocacy? Who's going to advocate? Mm-hmm. Who are going to be the, the activists that are going to be trying to get people free from their house? Like, I just, I feel like we don't get it and as a culture, as a society. I think, you know, people who are making these deals with the devil, literally, to get people basically to say, like, these are the good things. This is reform. We should be pro it or not thinking mm-hmm. this stuff through. This could become so insidious, we are not going to even know how to fight it. We won't be able to. We won't be able to have enough power to to come together to overturn something that will be so difficult for us to characterize. 
I really appreciate the the way that you've both set up this vision for the real challenges that we have ahead and just really giving a more concrete context for the generational harm of the prison policy and the methodization, mm-hmm. as you call it, that, that we have. And I, I appreciate that term. Um, I know that we're wrapping up and I, I wondered if it's possible to change text just a little bit and see if you know, as you think generationally about this, if you see any sort of openings or room for us to be getting ahead of these systems. I know we didn't get to talk a lot about the whole range of your work, and I know you have the history through Project NIA working with youth. I don't know if that work has, you know, given you certain visions that you can share with us or ideas for how can we meet these challenges ahead, but if you have anything sort of to leave us with uh, as we close out. Well, I think that what Mariam said earlier about reframing the ways that we talk about the issue. So it's not mass incarceration as like the, again, the physical buildings in which people are confined in and separated and made invisible, but looking at it as mass criminalization and saying like, how do we fight this system? Or how do we chip away at the system while also keeping in mind that there are people locked up in these systems right now? So we can't say like, you know, hold on. 2.2 2.2 million people in jails and prisons and, you know, 700 or 800,000 people in immigrant detention while we, you know, figure out how to abolish the entire system. But how do we do this in a way that then doesn't expand the system? How do we do this in a way that doesn't screw people over either now or in the future? So how do we do this in ways in which we are transforming society so that, A, we're looking at addressing issues of harm differently? And how do we do this in ways in which we're also talking about shifting resources? So if people need resources, we're not talking about building a mental health jail, which is what they were talking about in Los Angeles, or building a new women's jail because so many women are getting arrested and going through the criminal legal system, even if it's just for a day or a night or a week, you know, but not saying like our solution is to build a mental health jail. And then you can go there and you can get your mental health needs taken care of, but only after you have police contact and you get arrested and you are sent there and you can't walk in and walk out. You don't get to like go in there and then it's like, oh, I have a therapist appointment and I have my meds and then walk out. No, you you are there and you are turned through the system, even if eventually you are let out. Meanwhile, people in the community can't just walk into this new mental health jail and say, hey, you know, I ran out of meds and I need to re-up my meds. And by the way, can I also have a counseling session? Like, So thinking about ways in which we reframe these questions and also ways in which we're advocating for resources when we identify problems. If over 50% of people in jails have mental health issues that have gone unaddressed, let's talk about mental health treatment that's available and accessible on the outside. And let's talk about the fact that we don't have a medical or mental health care system in place nationwide for people. Like, why don't we have that? Why don't we have, you know, universal access to health care or mental health care, you know, that people can access? Why are we looking at prisons or jails or something, you know, some punitive system to provide these because people are being swept up in the net for it? You know, I want to say something about, um, you know, people often talk about mass incarceration, mass criminalization, and what people really want, especially when I give talks, is like, well, What's the hopeful part? Like, what, what are we, where is the hope in all of the? And I just, I feel in some ways, like I, when on my, on my worst days, I just want to turn to people and be like, you know, I'm not your pastor, but I understand the feelings that folks have, the desire that people have to want to feel like 
there's light at the end of the tunnel somewhere mm-hmm. and that it's not all just a whole mess of harm and suffering. Like I, I get that. And so with that in mind, I want to just say that to me, the hope in this whole entire thing is in us, in our mm-hmm. willingness or unwillingness, depending on where we're at to refuse things to be like, we are, no, this actually doesn't make any sense. No, we're going, you know, we're going to fight like hell. You're not going to build a new jail in our community. Mm-hmm. Yes, even closures of prisons, you must do so. Even, even though people, quote unquote, think prisons are job, you know, are job creators, right? Like we have to challenge everything all the time. I mean, there's just no other there's nothing else for really us to leave people with, but that we have mm-hmm. to fight and we have to fight always, all the time. Now, the same people don't have to fight always, all the time. We all should be yeah. tagging in mm-hmm. where we can, when we can, and taking short breathers or long breathers as we need them. But we need more people. We need more people engaged we need more people fighting on every level all the time in the places that they can. And sometimes it's in the unlikely places. I don't think that, you know, it's just because Vicky and I happen to work in an arena where we're focused on criminalization per se, people who are doing environmental justice work are working on my issue. People who are doing mm-hmm. work on living wages are working on my issue. People who are ensuring that our children have good schools are working on my issue. All of these things to me, it's one thing. It's connected. Mm-hmm. It's like close your eyes and there's an elephant in front of you and each of us are picking apart and saying, oh, that's the rope. Oh, this is a trunk for a tree. Oh, this is whatever. But it's one elephant, you know? And I think that that's where we need to be. We all need to be fighting in our place where we are, how we can with ethics with good analytical questions guiding us, insisting that we don't expand these horrible systems, but that everything we're doing is towards shrinking them, we'll be okay if that's where we're headed. Well, thank you both so much for your time and all of this knowledge that you've shared. I've I've really appreciated hearing from you, and I know our listeners will as well. So thanks so much for this. Great. Thanks for having us. Right. Yeah, thanks for having us. Now for a roundup of some of the headlines here at the Center for Constitutional Rights. After 11 years of litigation, our Abu Ghraib torture case is headed to trial. Al-Shamari v. Khaki is a case on behalf of three torture survivors who were detained at the Abu Ghraib hard site from 2003 to 2004 against Khaki Premier Technology. Our lawsuit asserts that Khaki, a private military contractor that provided interrogation services at the prison, played a role in the torture and abuse of detainees there. The case was filed in 2008, and Khaki has sought to dismiss it over a dozen times. The trial is scheduled to begin in Alexandria, Virginia on April 23rd. This will be the first case on behalf of post-9-11 torture survivors to go to trial. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you our clients' stories, background on the case, and updates on the trial. We had a big win recently when a federal court dismissed a ridiculous racketeering case filed by Dakota Access Pipeline Company energy transfer against activists and environmental groups protesting at Standing Rock. 
One of the targets was our client Crystal Tubuls, an Aglala Lakota and Northern Cheyenne organizer. Commenting on our victory, Crystal said, this is what happens when greedy corporations go after indigenous women. We had another win in our no-fly list case. A court of appeals found that American Muslims who were put on the no-fly list as a way to coerce them into being informants can sue the FBI for damages. Back in 2014, together with the CUNY Clear Project, we filed a complaint that challenged the FBI's abuse of the no-fly list in this way. Our clients were four American Muslim men with no criminal records who found themselves on the no-fly list after refusing to spy for the FBI. The court ruled that they can sue FBI agents for damages under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. In some scary news, our clients, Ala Tolado, have recently been harassed and detained by officials at the U.S.-Mexico border. Ala Tolado is an organization that provides legal services and know-your-rights trainings to immigrants. Directors from the organization were detained and questioned for hours, having alerts placed on their U.S. passports and getting travel documents revoked without explanation. One was detained with her seven-year-old daughter in a cell with no food or water for more than eight hours. It was clearly in retaliation for Alatorlado's work helping people seeking asylum. Then earlier this month, news broke that the FBI has created dossiers on activists, lawyers, and journalists that they think are causing trouble along the southern border, and our clients were on the list. Keep checking our website for further updates. I just need you to say the real AF. The real AF. It's the real AF. It's Ian here with Aaliyah, and now I'm going to ask her some questions. Yeah? Are you ready? ready? Here we go. Would you rather hang out with Batman or Captain America? I think I'd hang out with Batman just because I know Batman better. Like, I watched most of the Batman movies growing up with my brothers, and Batman lives in New York, and I know New York, so... It's kind of would be cool and different, but still not totally unfamiliar. I know you want this question. Would you rather have a role in a rom-com or a horror movie? Definitely rom-com. I don't need to be the central protagonist. I would be happy being the friend. But rom-com, I, horror film, did you say horror or action film? Horror. I didn't see. I didn't even listen to the second one because it's rom com. <laughs> I horror films freak me out. They make me anxious. So rom com. Would you rather spend a week at Burning Man or a month alone at a writing retreat? I would probably spend a month alone at a writing retreat if I'm allowed to use cell phones. Like I don't want to be totally alone, alone. But I think having some downtime and getting out of the city and, and focusing on writing and expression would be really great. Would you rather live in Miami or Hawaii? So I've never been to either of those places. Um, Hawaii sounds awesome, but it's far. Um, and I'd want to be close enough to my family in New York, New Jersey. I don't know. I would love to live in maybe one of those places and have a vacation home in another. Would you rather be hiking and run into a wild boar or an alligator? First of all, I'd never be hiking, <laughs> but if I were hiking, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's some research on which one is more likely to kill you, um, but I don't know what that is. Wild boars sound, in, it sounds intense, but I think with crocodile, 
Is that what you said? An alligator, alligator crocodile. It all kinds of blends together. Um, I think like the, my response time might not be fast enough to like win with a an alligator. So I guess a boar. Would you rather go deep sea diving or bungee jumping? Neither of those things sound appealing to me. In theory, I would like to explore the deep ocean. Like I like watching, you know, documentaries and stuff about that. I am not confident in my swimming skills to imagine that not being scary. I think bungee jumping sounds terrifying, but like once you're out, you're out and you enjoy it. Like you don't have to, you know, you don't have to then deal with like making sure you don't you don't drown and like all that stuff. So I guess bungee jump. Would you rather listen to death metal or EDM while driving? To be honest, I don't totally know what EDM is. Like I think I know probably EDM. Death metal is scary. Growing up, my brother used to listen to Rammstein. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's some Ger- a German Sounds band scary. on the way to school, and it was intense <laughs> and not what I wanted to listen to in the morning. So um, I guess EDM. Thanks. Yeah. Nice.